Hey, welcome to the Living the Dream podcast, where we help you get clarity, build skills, enhance your character, curate your environment, take daily massive action, and develop a positive mindset. Join our community by heading over to workwithtimmydouglas.com and get our free book and list of questions that will help you build an impactful and purposeful life. Enjoy the show. All right, what's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the Living the Dream podcast. Today on the show, we have Des Haig, who is an author, innovator, and he managed eight companies from IHOP to Safeway and Centerplate. Des, how you doing today? I'm doing great. Yourself? Nice to meet you. Pleasure. Yes, yes. Nice to meet you. I am doing well. Thank you so much for asking. And we like to jump right in. So if you could start with telling us a little bit more about yourself and what you like to do for fun, that'd be great. Terrific. Well, pleasure again, Tim. A um, little bit about me. I've uh, I've had the pleasure of running eight companies in my career, being on 20 boards. Um, what I like for fun is uh, traveling, reading, and really learning from people. You cannot over underemphasize uh, how you can learn from every single experience and person you come into contact with to make you uh, a better person. Mm, I like that. What is the strangest thing that you've learned from a random interaction? Maybe hard to have it come to mind, but I'm curious if you had anything pop up. Um, yeah, that's a good question. I've never been asked it before. So um, I suppose the strangest interaction is, you know, I've, I've had the pleasure of traveling a lot, Tim. And in Ireland, when I was traveling with my wife, the most uh, strangest experience is I was in the middle of a hotel and in dining in, in Ashford Castle in, in Ireland. And as I'm walking through uh, the dining room, uh, a guy just suddenly collapses on the table, uh, choking. And as I nobody's springing to action, and suddenly I'm seeing foaming and whiteness of the face and perform the Heimlich maneuver, which was phenomenal as the piece of food came out and the guy, you know, was resuscitated. And... Uh, you know, that night was phenomenal. Uh, first of all, he thanked me. Second of all, he paid for my meal, which was not really necessary, but it was great to save a life. And uh, ironically, Tim, a few years later, I'm with my son and my wife in Cabo, and the exact same thing happens again. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a Heimlich Maneuver twice uh, 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 candidate, and I'm glad I've saved somebody or several, you know, two people's lives from from doing that. So what you learn from that is chew your food. <laughs> <laughs> I gotcha. I gotcha. That, that was a much more exciting answer than I thought I was going to get. So I appreciate that. <laughs> I, I suppose there's a third one that's just sprung up. I was in I was in uh, New Zealand and uh, traveling up to a mountain, you know, to see a crater. And, and the lady was, you know, adamant that we should only have one child in each family and kept ranting about only one person per family. And I said to her, listen, I, I get what you're saying, but I'm the second kid in the family. So uh, without my dad having a second child, I wouldn't be here. So I don't agree with your, with your uh, intent on that one. There we go. <laughs> there we go. I got you, man. Well, cool. So traveling, reading, learning from other people. You've ran eight companies. You've been on 20 boards. Talk to us about how one gets into the position because you still look like a fairly young man. 
Well, so, thank you, Tim. Yeah, uh, I appreciate that. Um, you know, um, I, I think it comes when when I was a kid, and we were dirt poor, by the way. We had you know no TV, no telephones. We didn't have you know the things that you know people take for granted today. And I always thought that you know I watched this video, a uh, uh, news clip, and it was a really bad clip. It was about a gentleman who died traveling on his way to Alton Towers, the helicopter crash, and it killed his family, which was an awful moment. But, you know, I, I always think about how to take the good from that. And my good from that situation was it gave me the idea at nine years old or 10 years old, I wanted to be in business. I don't know why, but I've always loved the business world. Uh, I grew up in, in that environment. And so for me, it's those small things that have a massive impact on your life. So that one clip solidified in my mind that I was going to be a business guy. And that's what I, that's what's driven my career, my life for the last 40 years. Mm. And that was when you were nine years old, you said? Yeah, about nine or 10 years old. Okay. Okay. So nine or 10 years old, you had the decision, you made the decision or you knew that you were going to be a business guy. And so did you just start? running businesses at 10 years old were you like <laughs> well i had a paper round i had a milk round i did you know the hard work and then from 15 i got into the family business uh, a, a friend of a family's business who had a video shop so i learned from the ground up you know how to peel 50 pound bags of potatoes by hand to work in this fish and chip shop and that kind of led me into my career path of, you know, you've got to approach every single opportunity as a learning opportunity to grow. And, and that gave me the belief and the confidence. We then opened a video store, the first in the North of England, and I was the manager. So I'm 17 years old now, managing a video shop, a fish and chip shop, a butcher's shop, and a grocery store. And so I got my, I cut my teeth Real early, I left school at 15. I, I didn't have a degree. I went back and got my MBA. But right then and there, it was like, do whatever it takes. And really, I've always had a belief that you should never stop learning. Uh, you know, that's why I love reading. You can learn from others' experiences, the biographies and the lifelong lessons. And really, you know, I, I really believe this, Tim, is adversity is inevitable, Defeat is optional. And so you choose carefully. You know, you get knocked down seven times, you get up an eighth time, and you constantly just keep moving forward. And that's kind of propelled me into corporate world with Pizza Hub. And, and um, then when the wall came down, I'm a little bit older than you, Tim. So when the wall came down uh, in, in Berlin, they sent PepsiCo, gave me the unbelievable opportunity of going to Poland and opening up Pizza Hut's, Taco Bell and KFC's. And the learnings are just, they're never ending. It was a yeah. great experience. And I would advocate for anybody, get out there, uh, accept opportunities that you may not be capable for. But if you've got the never, never defeats attitude, you can really do great things. Mm. I love it. Wow. So 15, 17, you were in your first management position and you were managing four spots and yep. you got to the point where you've ran eight companies, you've been on 20 boards. 
And so how does opportunity, in your opinion, how does it tend to come your way? Do you Did you go out searching to run those companies? Did it come to you through a relationship? Talk to us about that. Great question. Uh, you know, I, I think it's a combination of Tim. For me personally, it was about applying myself, getting into the role, doing the role, you know, really shining, uh, you know, showing your, you know, your capabilities. And then doors will always open for you, I find. And if the door doesn't open, you knock on your and make your own door. Mm. And so, you know, as I'm in Poland and I'm, you know, progressing nicely in the PepsiCo organization, a friend of a friend was in Whitbread, which was the third largest retailer in the in Europe at the time. And they had a 1600 store liquor operation, you know, like, a, um, you know, um, uh, selling alcohol, you know, like a like a, a liquor store. Yeah. And I had 842 of those to run and was given the opportunity and took it, ran with it. And then my wife was an American. She got reassigned back to America. And I came to the States without a job. Uh, even though my career at that point was good, I'd got my MBA, I'd done a lot of things, but I came to America without any opportunities. And then again, it was word of mouth finding the right spot. Luckily, there was a technology called TurboChef, which if you, uh, if you don't know it right now, if you go into any Subway or any Starbucks and you see that little uh, uh, rapid cook machine that they'll toast your sandwiches on yeah. or they'll make you your bacon, you know, bacon cheeseburger or whatever, um, that technology, I had the pleasure of commercializing uh, as I just turned 30 in, in the US. And uh, that catapulted me to then run 7-Elevens, 32,000 fresh food uh, stores uh, across, across the globe, predominantly North America. Uh, and that led me then to my first CEO role, running Hot Stuff Foods at 33 years old. Uh, again, a little bit of who you know, but also how you operate and how you comport yourself to drive performance. Okay. So you're a high performance guy, man. You got to tell me what is like, what is, what's the secret sauce? Are you just naturally a beast? Do you have certain habits? <laughs> Do you have a certain perspective? Like what made you get to that role where it's like, I'm just hitting so well and everything I'm touching is doing really well. How do you approach your problem? I I think, you know, if I had to sum it up and I had to say there's one thing that I really believe separate good from great is your ability to do whatever it takes. Mm. And I know it sounds cliched, but in my mind, what it means is there's not a meeting that I won't go to. There's not a task that I won't do. There's not a situation I'm going to be scared of entering. And it's just having that internal belief that you'll do whatever it takes. And, and that's, and, and combine that with a great work ethic, the great, the determination, courage to be wrong. Um, I find so many people will shy away from failure. I embrace failure. I'm not saying I want to fail Tim. What yeah. I'm saying is I want to put myself in a position where I know I will succeed. I, I, you look at the greats, Michael Jordan, the sports guys, Tim, uh, Tom Brady, you know, Rafa Nadal, you know, uh, Apollo Ono. These guys put the work in. They, they practice. 
And that's what you have to do in business. If you want to be at the top of your game, you have to put the effort in and do whatever it takes. Mm. Mm. I love it. The doing whatever it takes mentality. And it's funny because I've been learning a lot about marketing and like just, you know, it's a risk if you're just getting started and you don't know how to market and you have $3,000 and you want to get your brand out there to not know how to market and to invest that $3,000 can be scary for a lot of people. But then I talked to some other business owners and they're like, yeah, I'm dropping 1500 a day or 2500 a day. Or I'm sure you've seen much bigger marketing budgets with the companies that you run. And so can you talk to us about um, addressing fear when it pops up? Because are you saying that you don't feel fear or just that you don't let fear stop you? I think you have to embrace fear. If you want to do great things, you have to put yourself out. And, you know, like, what have you got to fear but fear itself? A great quote out there. And what's the worst case scenario? Yeah. That you fail. Yeah. But if you, have, if you have got the mindset, embrace every setback, apply, get the learnings, apply them, then I look at it as all you can do is win. You can, you can only be a better person, Tim. You can only be better. So be intentional. So when you think about a $1,500 budget, I mean, it's a, let's face it, $1,500 to a startup entrepreneur is a lot of money at times. They may not have got that money. So you've got to find ways that you can market yourself, how you connect with others, how you can ask. This is the other big thing. Ask for help. People love helping you. People love people, you know, if they want to help you and you're a genuine, authentic person and you ask for help, nine times out of 10, they're going to say, what can I do? And they'll do more than you ever think they would uh, do by themselves. Yeah. Uh, they'll, they'll, or you would like them to do. They'll, they'll go that extra mile for people that they want to help. So never be afraid to ask for help Look, you know, there's um, one of the greatest books I've ever read, Tim, and, it, and, and things really um, happen when you put the effort in. One of the greatest books that I read uh, back in uh, the early, early 2000s was Erickson's um, um, the, uh, the Innovator's Dilemma. Yeah. Uh, and in that book, it lays out, you know, the, the law of disruption. And I don't want to get too technical with you. There's the law of Medcard, the law of more. And basically, I used that knowledge that I didn't have, and I applied it to TurboChef. And it's now a global brand. And, and you know, so if, if you just got to reach out in your toolbox, find all the vehicles to help you succeed, and then apply yourself. Mm. I love it. I love how you went to a book, applied the book, and now it's a global brand. And obviously, there's more to that story than those three things. Right. But it was the consistent, persistent application of that knowledge and the learning mentality that you've just been talking about for the past 10 minutes that led to that and led to who you are today. And I think it was a, a book of $9.99. So for $10, it yep. gave me a tool that I've used for the last 20 years in Safeway and IHOP at Centerpoint, these are all multi-billion dollar companies. And it's that $9.99 that I spent then that has helped me run those organizations. Mm. 
So tell us a little bit about your motivation. What really gets you up and keeps you going every day? Um, it's It really comes down to um, doing well and doing good. So if I can do well in life and my business and my business pursuits, and then I use that to then help others. Uh, and I think that's the combination that I've used. Do well and do good. I like it. And so you have written a book. Tell us the title of your book and tell us a little bit about the book. The, the book is uh, it's my life story, Tim. Uh, and uh, the title is My Worst Ever Moment in Life is the title. And it's 15 Minutes of Shame and How a Twitter Mob Almost Ruined My Life. Uh, and, and, you know, so what I, what I take from that is I want to share my experiences you know, again, I talk about adversity a lot, but it's really about resilience. You're all going to get knocked down. We're all going to feel less than we are. And we cannot allow any opportunity or moment or people who are your distractors take away from what you're trying to achieve. So the book, it, it, it lays out my life stories. It talks about my childhood, which was pretty extreme. I, I was um, one of four boys. My mother died of uh, ovarian cancer when I was nine years old. And my dad remarried to uh, probably, I would say, the, one of the most evil people in the world. She was a, 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 a habitual alcoholic, an abuser uh, of me and my, of my brothers. And so those, weak, those really bleak, darkest moments have helped shape me. And I wanted to share that with the world because people think, oh, the guy's ran eight companies. He's been on 20 boards. He's got a silver spoon. And it couldn't be further from the truth. And I, and I think of like Jewel, the, 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 uh, the singer who I had the pleasure of uh, hosting for one of the um, events in Baltimore. It was the journey home. The mayor there was trying to eradicate child homelessness. And that's really close to my heart because I left home at 15. I was homeless. I've been homeless twice in my life. And what I wanted to do is give back to those kids so they would have a brighter future. And so I, I lay out how, again, doing well and doing good through the book, but also sharing my worst moments. So hopefully somebody can say, oh, you know, I can learn from that. This is going to be something that's going to give me insights. To, to get over my adversity and to help them through uh, so they can have a fulfilled life as well. So the book um, titles a moment in my time in 2014 when I was canceled on Twitter. I was in Vancouver. I was actually at the time, unfortunately, uh, just being diagnosed with prostate cancer. And I was my wife had just had by bilateral mastectomy and going through breast cancer. And I thought I could handle this by myself, but I couldn't. Uh, and that's the thing, again, I would like to convey through this is nobody is big enough and strong enough and tough enough to handle it by themselves. They've got to ask for help. I didn't. I walked, so I'm in Vancouver. I'm just out of treatment for uh, prostate. And I was walking one night my friend's dog. And as I'm walking the dog, um, it pulled away from me, around me, and dis 
wrapped around me and dislocated two of my fingers on my right hand. And as I'm looking down at the dog, I should have counted to 10, but I didn't. I lost my temper. I over-disciplined the dog. I yanked it into the elevator and uh, it, the dog was wearing a, a harness. So I couldn't really hurt the dog by picking it up. But the video was absolutely horrendous. It looked like I was really uh, abusing a dog. And that video clip went viral. And there's a lot of, you know, a lot of backstory to that. But ultimately, it led to a Twitter mob coming after me. It led to me having to resign from uh, the job I really loved, building this company up, Centerplay at the time, to the world's leader in event hospitality. And I resigned through this, through this process. And really, the book lays out that. It lays out the facts. It doesn't. It's unvarnished. It's raw. It's real. Uh, it, it, it's the, the high and low of it all. And it lays out kind of my side of what happened so people could learn from that. Mm. So at that time, you were going through cancer. Your wife was going through cancer. <laughs> the dog had just dislocated two of your fingers. But I assume the Twitter mob didn't care about any of that. What they were really focused on was the horrendous picture that the video was painting. Yeah. And, and Tim, it was, I, I got to tell you, I thought that I'd been through a lot in my life. I've been, you know, been abused for years by my stepmother. Uh, five years, I would stand at the top of the stairs and protect my younger brothers so she couldn't beat them. And it was a beat down every night for several years. And I thought, in addition to that, when I was 18, I was really brutally raped by a friend of a friend. And I thought there's nothing that I could not deal with in life. And that may be what gave me confidence to get into the business and, and, and not be daunted by these challenges. But I got to tell you, at the first, I, my, my reality cracked at first contact with Twitter. It was 150,000 people screaming for my head, the screechiest blue checkers, which I say in the book, should be designated more like a cross and a skull and crossbow designation. These people are vicious. And so they launched a, the most vicious attack. They called my clients, they called the boards I was on, they called my friends and family. In fact, uh, one day, uh, about a week into this whole, you know, unbelievable deconstruction of my life, a couple of the Twitter or a Twitter follower actually attacked my youngest son, attacked my son outside of Walgreens in Stamford, Connecticut, um, thinking he was this 17 year old kid was a 47 year old man. Uh, they, they, they will stop at nothing. And I'm not trying to be belligerent or, you know, trying to, you know, um, vilify uh, anybody. Their actions vilified themselves. But it got worse when, when once I'd resigned, we got death threats for several years. My wife actually got a note, like a hostage taker note with clips from a newspaper saying, we know where you live and you are not safe. That is unhinged behavior. 
And, and that's what we got to really figure out here is cancel culture has gone too far. You know, if you're a real villain and you've done some real harm in the world, then there's justification. But to go after somebody you don't know only through a clip that's, you know, grainy on a, on a, on a elevator surveillance camera is way beyond the pale. It's not irrational. It's not rational behavior. Yeah. I think what's, what's crazy. This is what really gets me about the story you just told. Um, People are canceling you for yanking a dog in a video, or I I haven't seen the video, whatever you did, yanked it. Um, Maybe they like just had the rose colored glasses of the filter of their life. And they're like puppy love and, Yep. Whatever. They got really intense. They got really emotional. Whatever that video was, the fact that they then went to attack your son, send death threats to your wife, or like just treat you as if you're not human. It's just so strange to me that they would cancel you for yanking a dog, but then they feel justified in treating another human being like they're doing it. And then they're not canceled for that. And the mob of just like, anger and frustration that goes on the internet it just blows my mind I'm like you should cancel yourself for how you're acting well that's the thing about twitter and i'm hoping that elon will be able to manage this but i think it's too big a job for anybody to be honest because people want to hate people they don't want to be kind and and love others they really say they do but the reality is their actions don't uh, match that intent so when I think about Twitter, one of the worst things in the world is it allows people to have anonymity. And with anonymity, it allows them to act out in ways you wouldn't do. They wouldn't do that on a call. They wouldn't do that in person. But they see it as they don't call it, oh, it's going to be, it's their way to vent. And, and you know, like Phil Collins said in his, sang in his song, too many people with too many voices. And what Twitter's allowed people to have is a voice. So the six billion voices that can echo in an echo chamber and create real havoc for people. There's many examples. Um, you know, I I, um, I looked at uh, the, the the real reality on Twitter, Tim. From my perspective, it's a money machine to circulate hatred. Yeah. And so uh, there was a a video a, a, a YouTube. Um, uh, uh, of, of a speech, um, uh, sorry, a web, uh, a TEDx, where he talked about there was a lady going to South Africa. She had 170 Twitter followers, and she she made uh, an off uh, off key comment where she said, "I'm going to Africa. Uh, I hope I don't I don't catch AIDS." But she followed that up with saying, I'm only kidding because I'm white. And before she landed in Johannesburg, uh, there was an uproar. She was fired from the organization, vilified. But what really happens is from a Google search perspective, she was uh, searched at 1,200,000 times. Mm. That created about $400,000 of income on that one incidence for the platform. And so it's a money machine. And it's sad, and I wish it didn't happen, and I would only ask people, do you want to be judged by your worst moment? Because we all have them. And uh, that's what we got to say is, you know, when we say enough is enough. It's not germane 
to con you know conducive, friendly, amicable conversation. Um, in my case with Twitter, Tim, I will tell you what really set the ball rolling was um, one of the um, viewers, if you like, got the video clip. And I talk about it in my book. It's Dan Kim. He was the founder of Red Mango. And it, it, it triggered him on a childhood experience that he had himself. And so that launched the whole, you know, org.com, let's go and get this guy. Let, let's, let's, let's really set Des on fire in the public digital square. Yeah. So it was one dude who really launched that? Yeah, he got behind it. And then there was, we found out since then, there was six trolls. Uh, I'm not saying they're living in the basement, uh, but I'll, you know, but maybe they were. And they retweeted this 20,000 times. So it was really a handful of people who, it was a coordinated hatchet job. And it was a complete destruction and a deconstruction of my life. So one dude got behind it and did he rally the other six to be like, hey, I'm going to pay you, retweet this 20,000 times, make it go viral. I think there's people who will take any cause, as we know, and, and rally around it. I don't know if it was a coordinated effort by Dan. I don't believe it was, but excuse me, but six of them definitely got behind it and really uh, caused complete havoc in my life. And then, you know, you know, again, covered in my book, Tim, the BCSPAC, the, the Protection Agency for Cruelty to Animals, they picked up this story. They got it actually from the video clip was sent to them by the security manager of the hotel um, condo complex. And you would think, okay, well, was the guy concerned about animals? Was he really upset and was he triggered himself? But the reality is what we found out is that gentleman sent that video clip for no other purpose than having his boss fired so he could take his job. So really it's just bad on bad. And to make matters worse, then the EVP of the BC SPAC over a 20 year, again, in, in the book, 15 Minutes of Shame Tim, I lay this out in, a, in, in much co more complete context, but I was the only person that they have ever named in any uh, claim or dispute. So why was that? Why perceived rich CEO, uh, maybe my political affiliations. And the statement from this person was, we are gonna use Des as our poster child to raise money. It was, and, and putting my name in print, which has not been done before or after, uh, and there's been cases of 300, 200, 100 big animal, real cruelty stories that wasn't given the same treatment. So it's just about fairness, uh, but they wanted to, you know, again, they wanted to use me to raise cash. I, I uh, I offered them $100,000, not as a any type of bribe, Tim, because I felt bad about what I've done. And we all, don't we all grow 
from our mistakes and there's redemption and we can move forward. None of that was in play here. It was all for nefarious objectives. Yeah. Yeah, man. That is, um, that just doesn't give you a lot of hope and faith in, uh, in humanity. And usually, you know, there's some, there's redeemable traits of a story. And I would say the redeemable trait of this story is uh, kind of how you've come out of it. The fact that you're not like being belligerent against them or trying to sue them or trying to, um, you know, it is what it is. And you've kind of accepted it. And I think that's an admirable way to treat this, especially when it ransacked your life. Well, Tim, I, I got to tell you, I I, I, uh, I don't want to appear magnanimous here or like I'm bigger than I am. The reality is for several years, I didn't feel good. Mm. You know, I felt like in a deep depression, almost like PTSD. You've never, I've never felt the hatred and the vitriol aimed at me. I've always been a guy who said, I make the life of others better. Yeah. I've never been the problem and suddenly I am the problem. And for years, it really affected me, affected my psyche, it affected my sleep, it affected my well-being. It's, it completely derailed my career for several years. And But what I would tell you now, Tim, is I, I don't look at it with hatred. What's the point? If I carry that hatred around, it just becomes a rock on my back that I have to carry every single day in every single interaction. So as I look at it now with in the rear view mirror with a few years, almost a decade behind me, I actually feel it made me stronger. Yeah. And it's, it's done things for me in my career now that probably wouldn't have happened. I wouldn't have wrote this book. I, I, I wouldn't have laid out my soul the way that I have but I, I think that now I'm on the flip side of that where people can learn from my experience. They, I've been canceled. I refused to let them cancel me, but it didn't mean there wasn't hardship. And I look at it now and say, I'm on a different path. I've been published. I'm working on my second book, which is thinking your way to the top, lessons from a eight-time CEO, 20 times board member. And I'm laying out those life lessons. So it's set me on this different path. It's different than I expected, but it's still equally fulfilling. Mm. Speaking of that, let's jump into those dreams and goals. Tell us about your vision for the rest of your life, your books, your career, your businesses. Yeah, I, I think, well, I, I think it's a multiple path. It's uh, it's like a, you know, alphabet soup. I think one, what soup, sorry. The one is I'm, you know, uh, I'm embarking on my, you know, author career, if you like. I've got 15 Minutes of Shame. It launches September 12th. It's on pre-sale now on Amazon and, Bo and Barnes and & Noble and Amplify Publishing, who are phenomenal to work with, by the way. Uh, Nareem and the team there, Brandon and, and other and Sky and others. And so the book is, is one vehicle. And, you know, I've got several that are lying up behind that. I've got, you know, other thoughts. So, I, I see four or five in my very near future. Uh, I'm going to be on the speaking circuit talking about resilience, adversity, uh, lessons that I've learned in my life. Uh, I'm not taking your job, Tim, but I'm going to launch my podcast of Onwards, which has always been my kind of mantra is, you know, 
whatever happens, I'm moving onwards. I'm not going to be stalled. I'm not going to sink. I'm not going to collapse under the wave. And then I'm still looking, you know, I invest in different companies and I'm looking for the, my next company to run. So it keeps me busy. Yeah. I got you. So it sounds like you're kind of hitting on all cylinders for the foundation of the personal brand, but also still looking to run another company. Is that right? Right. Okay. And are you saying, when you're saying looking for another company run to run, do you see that in like full capacity, you know, 40 to 60 hour weeks as a CEO, or do you see it more as like an owner where you have your uh, C-suite in place? Uh, It's more of being a CEO running a company that could be an investment opportunity, or it could be, you know, a, a, a private company that I'm hired in to run the organization. Yeah. I gotcha. And when you're investing into different companies, are you like an angel investor? Are you like, how does that work? A combination of Tim, uh, Tim. you know, I've, I've invested in seven or eight, actually eight companies currently that I play a role in. I usually serve on their board so I can give them insights, uh, you know, how to, you know, scale, uh, deal with the problems that they're facing with, help them through the founder or the team to, uh, you know, uh, maximize their potential uh, all the way through to uh, taking a a larger equity stake. I took a 50% stake in a very reputable um, design firm with 12 offices around the world, uh, Young and Caruso. It was WCP at the time. So just the different different opportunities. um, I, I fund differently and I think about them differently. Okay. Okay. I gotcha. That's really cool. That's really cool. Thank you. So we got embarking on the author career, the speaking circuit with talking about resilience and just lessons you've learned, launch your podcast called Onwards, and then investing in different companies and looking for your next company to run. What would be your ideal next company to run? Well, I'm kind of agnostic into the industries. I've been in the hospitality space with Centerplay. I've ran the perishables business as the president of Safeway, a $20 billion company. I've obviously ran IHOP, a multi-billion dollar company, uh, and uh, 7-Eleven and and others. And so the ideal thing for me is whatever really excites me. You know, it's not about does it have to be a a million-dollar company or a billion-dollar company. It's do, do my experiences and what I know, will it help that company? I'm not one of these guys who thinks I can do everything. So it's about being focused on, is it technology? I'm on, on a board called Margin, which is a startup, uh, really helping small businesses manage their finances. I, I know that's going to be a home run. This is going to be a big, a, a big business, and I'm happy to help them on their glide path to success. Uh, and so it really is uh, really about the opportunity and also the need. And we'll, we'll make those determinations off those two things. Okay. And what value do you feel you specifically bring to a business when you're looking to help run it or be on the board? Well, I think, Tim, extreme value. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, it's just about, you know, it's about do you set the vision? Do you help the founder understand how they scale? Is it about how do they need marketing expertise? Do they need a network of advisors who I can pull in with my network? When I ran Viper, which was a, 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 a retail analytics AI business, 
we took it from a $5 million valuation to a $100 million valuation over three years. And what we did there was I really brought in 25 of my closest um, CEO advisors, people who've run Walt Disney, retail, Tom Hawks, uh, Diane Ellis, who ran Chico's and Lord uh, uh, Ruth uh, Ellis, uh, Ruth Smith, sorry, who ran Lord and Taylor, uh, Matt Guttermuth, who was the CEO of Safeway.com. I really look at whatever the business is in my network or their executives. And that's going back to really leveraging your relationships that can really do things that money can't buy. Yeah. Uh, having Tom and Diane and Matt and others on my advisory board uh, really allows you to do things that I wasn't even able to do when I ran Safeway or when I ran Centerplate. Uh, at Centerplate, we brought Michael Strain in as an advisor. We brought David Robinson, uh, the all-star uh, all, uh, all uh, from Houston in. Uh, we brought in Brian Connell, who's now the CEO and chairman of Target. But at that point, he was running PepsiCo, food service for the world. And you just bring in talent who know me, respect me, want to work with me, and I can add value. And, and, and to me, all those people came in, not for a big payday, but they want to help. Again, I go back to people want to help and people want to help and, and, and pass on their knowledge to the next level of leadership. Mm. <laughs> That's awesome, man. Uh, tell, me, tell me a little bit about the marketing expertise, because I'm really trying to learn marketing myself right now. So what would you say to a young budding entrepreneur about marketing? Make sure that your idea is big enough and good enough. Mm. And then make sure that you, you know, what I would say is be rigid in your vision, but be flexible on how you get there. And so what I find with most founders, they're, they're kind of locked in on a vision, uh, which is great, but then they don't adapt to the playing field. And so, you know, it's like, you know, I think Muhammad Ali said, or Mike Tyson said, everybody's got a strategy, Tim, until you get punched in the face. And yeah. then you've got to duck, you've got to weave, you've got to figure out, uh, you've got to be adaptive, you've got to be creative, you've got to say, okay, I originally thought this idea was going to do this. So, for example, at Turbo Chef, we thought the big play was to be in the pizza world. We found out that our innovation was better suited to Starbucks to Subway, to the McDonald's of the world, different application. The original idea was to be in the pizza space. If we'd have gone with that vision, Turbo Chef would be a nascent, defunct technology now. Yep. So you've got to be able to, again, the vision's great. Your tactics have got to change. You've got to really understand your target addressable market. I love where the market is large enough for you to get five or 10% of market share, and it's still a big idea. So don't be so niche that, you know, flu influenza could kill you. You know, when I run a million dollar company uh, or a hundred million dollar company, a million dollar decision can be fatal. But in a billion dollar decision, it's a rounding error. So you just gotta be, you know, you gotta look at it differently. You gotta think about your resources. You gotta hire talent. And you got to motivate them in still unbelievable 
confidence in them that they can succeed. Don't micromanage. Let There's nothing worse than bringing in talent and standing over the shoulder and micromanaging every, every uh, aspect of their life. You hire them, set them loose, motivate them, and, and, uh, and coach. Mm. You know what I really like about that advice? <laughs> None of it was really um, write this type of sales copy on your ad or write um, or have this sort of creative. It was all very like, make sure your thing, the offer or the product is really useful and good. Make right. sure your market a, you know your addressable market, and it's big enough to where you can make an impact. Hire great talent and don't micromanage them. And then firm in vision, flexible in the tactics. So be real, willing to pivot. And I like that because, you know, a lot of people go really tactical. And then the tactical advice just isn't relevant to the person listening. And this is very like, know your product is useful and good. That's such a neglected thing. People will be trying to sell something that nobody wants, which is crazy. Right. And it's funny because when I when I first got to Turbo Chef, we, we were going through, I love this model of think it, build it, fix it. And what that allows you to do, it allows you to make mistakes and just constantly improve. But what we also found is our designers, the engineers, they were building things because they were cool. I don't want cool. I want relevant. Yep. What does the customer want? Not what does the tech head want or designer want? So design is so important. Look at what Steve Jobs and, and Ivy uh, has done uh, with, with Apple, of course. And design's very important, but the application is even greater than that. So when I think of the vision, Tim, I, 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 two things come to mind. A learning that I got reading about Henry Ford, and I was running marketing for Maytag at the time. So I'm running you know, 14 different companies globally launching, you know, new technologies. I was, a, I was the head of all advanced technologies. Mm. So the Turbo Chef oven, the glass front vending machine that you see in all the malls and the recreation centers, uh, the Kodak camera dispensing machine that went into all the aquariums and zoos. They were all under my purview. And what I found from Henry Ford was don't ask focus groups about what the customer wants. And his kind of quote was, if I asked my consumer at the time when Henry Ford was coming out with his T model, what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse. Yep. <laughs> they had no idea that they wanted a car. So don't show them a horse or ask them what they wanted. And, and that's, I took that to heart. So, and Jobs, uh, you know, when he was running Apple, um, he didn't, he wasn't a supporter of focus groups either. And when he launched, you remember the iPod? You probably don't remember the first iPod. I got the first iPod. Yeah. And it was a it was a thousand songs in your pocket. That was his USP, his unique selling proposition was you can go mobile, others can use the Mark Walkman, but it's a it's a cassette. I'm gonna give the customer the ability to play whatever songs they want. No focus group would have come from that, Tim. So I, I think what we got to understand is uh, opportunities arise before there's a tipping point in confirmation. You know, before you really know it's there, you got to, again, it's the vision. It's like, what am I trying to create? Knowing what that in, 
instinctively is, and it's the demo, it's of demonstrable value to the consumer. So we could go on for hours on, on I love marketing team. It's kind of my passion as well. You know, I've always said that you've got to make the company you're working for the best, a got to have product, not a nice to have, or, or I, I might need it or want it, but it's got to have it and it's got to have the appeal to drive and activate and engage with the consumer. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> I love it, dude. Thank you so much. For My pleasure. Like that. I really appreciate it. Well, cool. Des, what are the top one to two skills that you feel? I know you have a plethora of skills. But right. What are the top one to two skills you feel you need to develop right now to make some of these dreams and goals come true? Well, it all starts with the visioning process. It's like, what is the vision for the book? What is the vision for the podcast? What is the vision for the business? And I always... I've, I've done this for 20 plus years, Tim. I always develop a plan on a page, one page, not 20. I, I've been into business meetings where I've wanted to go to sleep for a week after I've endured <laughs> a 200 page PowerPoint deck that never got to the nub, never got to the essence of what's the vision. So if you can create on one page, what is the vision? What is the CEO objectives? What are the financial objectives? And then what are the five, only five, five key imperatives? And you work off those. You develop tactics from those. So that's always front of mind for me. Get your vision. So it's like a five-minute elevator speech. Now, that can turn in to multiple pages of a business plan. Yeah. But if you can't say it and communicate that, like you're talking to a fifth grader, it usually fails. Mm. Yeah. The simplicity of that clarity on that vision is what kind of, and so I guess when you're building out those multiple pages, you keep those five imperatives in mind. And anytime you make something, it's like, does it align with this imperative? And you're testing for that the whole time. Absolutely. And it's having the ability to know when it's not working, which yeah. is very hard. You think about it, Tim, right now. And it's in my second book where I talk about the, um, the complete shrinkage of the Fortune 500 in terms of how long do they stay in the Fortune 500s. So back in 1929, the average lifespan of a company in the Fortune 500 was 75 years. Right now, it's less than 15. And oh. it's getting less and less and less. You think about MySpace, you think about... Companies that used to have five billion, ten billion, twenty billion dollar market cap valuations are now no longer in, pl in play, and it's their inability to adapt. I think when I was running Centerplay, sorry, when I was running Safeway, um, I learned a lot about SKU management. We had forty five thousand SKUs. You needed to understand what was the customer's purchasing power. Again, with with Seven Eleven, the same story. We launched the retailer initiative understand your business at a more granular level than anybody else does. So this is 20 years, Tim, before big data and smart data was in. We were looking at the granular behavior patterns of the consumer and then have the ability to say, my product isn't hitting the mark and you've got to kill it. And it takes bravery. 
And people don't like killing the projects that they've led, but you've got to instill in them a belief that it's the right thing to do. They've got to come to the conclusion on their own that I'm going to move my energies onto something that's going to be more successful. And so pivoting and the courage that you need to make that pivot is, it can never go out of fashion. It can never be underestimated. And it takes a lot of soul searching, but back it up with data, back it up with consumer insights, back it up what you're seeing with your eyes. Sometimes you say, you're lying out, you, you know, don't believe your lying eyes. If the product's not selling, then you can't believe your lying brain or your heart. You got to believe the facts and you got to move on. Yeah. No, it is. It is a hard thing because people get really attached. To of their- course. Of yeah. course. I got gotcha. you. So getting clear on the vision. And then once you get clear on that vision, so once you develop that skill, what are the highest impact daily actions that tick the needle forward towards dreams? Well, well you got to have the team, you know, you know, because I, I, and I say this uh, with full sincerity. I don't care how smart you are. I don't care how good a plan it is. I don't care how good the vision statement is. If you haven't got the team that executes it and believes it, it will not, it might succeed but it won't be the showstopper that you think. And there's a book by Dory talks about the long game. And I think it's really important that anybody who's thinking about launching a business, launching a plan, launching a service, whatever your business is, Tim, uh, for many years, five to eight years, even the best innovations can feel like a sinkhole where good money has gone to die. And again, you you got to have that conviction. You got to have stickatuity. Uh, but again, at some point, you got to say, is it working or not? But most innovations, I think uh, Bill Gates said this: you think you can do more in the first year of your career than you can, yep. and you you think you can do a lot less than you can in three years, yep. and that's just the evolution of you progressing in any organization of any role that you're in. You know, it takes you six months to find out where the restrooms are in some of these organizations. <laughs> you're going through floor after floor and it just, it's its knowing that you got to pace yourself. You got to learn and, and, you know, another trait I would tell you is you learn from everybody, Tim. When I took on Centerplay as the CEO, uh, they just lost the New York Yankees. I can. So Centerplay, just for you and, and the viewers here, uh, runs hundreds of large venue sporting arenas. So think New York Yankees, think, you know, New Orleans Saints, think San Diego, uh, sorry, the uh, LA Chargers, think the San Francisco 49ers. So massive, iconic stadiums. If you're into football or soccer, um, uh, what I would call uh, football, but soccer. Think about Manchester City. Think, you know, think about Tottenham Hotspurs. These are, think about Atletica Madrid. These are big venues, Tim. And when I got there, we were in chaos. We just lost the largest client that we'd allowed ourselves to be defined by, which is another mistake. No one client should define you. Uh, you need to have your own values, your own uh, culture, your own reason for being. And association, if it's so levered to one account, is always dangerous 
And that's what I found out also as an investor. You got to look for uh, di diversity. Yeah. And so I get into this business and it's losing its clients. We then lost within 30 days two major NFL uh, clients, the uh, Kansas City Chiefs and the Arizona Cardinals. That could have been a death blow. But what it rallied, what I did, it, it gave me confidence that I'm in crisis mode. I need, I got a good vision, but I need to hire the team. And I need to give them belief and instill in them and give them the resources to succeed. And that's, so that's the next thing. You got your vision, then you got to get the resources. You got to get the team. You got to get everybody understanding what does success look like? Because if it's different to you than it is to somebody else, you're not, you're not, on, you're not, you're not talking and singing up the same hymn sheet. Mm -hmm. So it's alignment, aligned, connected, committed to the strategy and the tactics that are going to drive success. I love it. All right, we got one last question for you, and then we got to wrap it up. If there were one or two people that you could meet right now, you personally, that would help you take the next step towards some of your dreams and goals, who would they be, and how would they help you? That's a great question. I well, uh, I'm like you know the whole world kind of. <laughs> I think that, well, the normal cast of characters is the the business titans of the world are going to be, you know, obviously up there finding out. You know what? You know, I I remember meeting uh, Jeff Bezos when he was uh, when when Amazon was really uh, a fraction, a, a little speck of what it is today, and I'm in the fresh food business of 7-Eleven. And I was told by one of the investors at the time, because the rage in 1999, not just Prince, uh, party like it's 1999, but the rage there was the new economy. And that if you didn't have a digital e-com business, brick and mortar was dying. A brick and mortar is going to be around for a long time. People need to, to walk in. They need to have presence, there's a different uh, environment, a different shopping mentality. Uh, but I remember that I was told that I was in a business that wouldn't be around. Well, 7-Eleven at the time had 32,000 stores when that statement was made. 7-Eleven right now has 70,000 plus locations. Yeah. It's not dying, it's healthier than ever. So I, you know, I think the basis of the world obviously will give you great insights. Obviously Elon and, and others, um, but I also love the founders, the guys who are coming up with the new ideas. You know, AI wasn't around, chat wasn't around. We didn't have SaaS at that time. So you can learn from really everybody, Tim, in that environment. And so it's getting with them. I, I also think you can learn, and I have learned a ton from being around professional sports athletes of all, of all types. You know, so if it's boxing, if it's football, if it's soccer, if it's ice skating, um, you learn what it takes to succeed. And you apply those lessons where you can. Now, personally speaking, I'd love to see the Pope. Uh, I'd, I'd, I'd like to meet him. Um, I, I'd love, you know, to, I've been obviously to the Vatican, not obviously to you, but, I, you know, I think that learning from those type of people who, who can who influence a lot of people and, and how they do it and how they can communicate and be a force for good uh, are the people that I kind of would love to have dinner and lunch with or a coffee.
<laughs> there we go. All right. This is actually the last question for you. And then we're going to sign off the show. But I couldn't let the audience go without hearing what is your favorite book, movie, or podcast? Ooh. Well, I, I love Joe Rogan. I should, I, I should say, you know, it's, it's obviously your podcast, Tim. Uh, obviously. That's, that's the number one. <laughs> um, you know, but you look at what Joe Rogan's done. How can you not have the most amount of respect for how he's evolved, how he's taken an audience, and how he makes his show relevant. So on the podcast world, he's, he's, he's right up there. Um, my favorite book, uh, obviously it's my book, 15 Minutes of Shame, how uh, Twitter mob all the way through my life would be up there. But but I, I, I've got eclectic reading. I love autobiographies. Uh, so I, I think learnings you can get from, from those are all great. From a fiction side, I love Vince Flynn. I love the espionage yep. uh, kind of uh, scene. Uh, and then uh, favorite film, I love The Godfather because uh, I, I, I asked myself this uh, many times in my life of um, what's the offer that you can't refuse? So what yeah. is that? As I'm thinking about my business, what's the offer that they can't refuse? You know, what's that business? What's that tool? What's that it? that they need. And I suppose my second favorite film would be Spy Game with Robert Redford and Brad Pitt. Again, espionage, but from that, from that film, I launched what I would say is the most successful project that I've been involved with at Safeway at the time. And I used the code names of their projects for my project. <laughs> so so I, I, it's, I think imitation is, is flattery. And it was good enough for Brad and uh, um, Robert Redford. It's good enough for Des Haig. There we go. Well, Des, thanks so much for coming on the show, man. That's all we got for you. Pleasure. It's been an absolute pleasure. You take care. All the best. Of course, you take care, too. And if you guys are listening to this and you loved what Des had to say, make sure to check him out. Buy his book. It's coming out in September. Is that right, Des? September 12th, and it's on pre-sale now, Amazon or uh, Bonds and Nobles, and we'll be coming to bookstores near you shortly. Sounds good. All the links to find Des and find his books will be down in the show notes. Thank you guys so much for watching. We will see you on the next one. And on that note, we're out. Hey there, thanks for listening to the show. If you enjoyed today's episode, make sure to leave a review and send it to a friend. Don't forget, head over to workwithtimmydouglas.com to get your list of life-changing questions and our free book, Impact Ignition, Live a Purposeful Life. See you tomorrow for another show.